Amen. Well, we're in Luke 20 this week. If you have a Bible with you, Luke 20. We're going to look at a parable of Jesus. Um, we're breaking from our series in Exodus because of this Passion Week that we are in, starting today with Palm Sunday and, of course, culminating in Easter weekend. Um, Palm Sunday, as I mentioned at the beginning of our service, is a day where we commemorate the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem, into the gates on the back of a donkey, as it is recorded, and that is in fulfillment of a prophetic word spoken from the prophet Zechariah about the coming of the Messiah. And we call it Palm Sunday because on that day, the people were celebrating and saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were laying down their cloaks and their jackets and palm branches as they were acknowledging the arrival of the Messiah. And so in commemoration of that, we are taking this pause and looking at a text out of Luke's gospel. We're not going to look at that exact event, the triumphal entry as they call it. We're going to look at a, an event that took place just shortly after that during the actual Passion Week, and it comes out of Luke 20. In fact, we're going to be in Luke's account of the Passion Week this whole week, even Good Friday and on Easter. But the context of this story comes after Jesus entered the gates of Jerusalem, and as he entered those gates, he immediately went into the temple, and he looked around, and he saw that there were merchants in, the, in there, and they were selling sacrificial animals and all of these things, and in doing so, they were price gouging the people. They were taking advantage of the religious holiday and raising the prices on those who had come to worship, and Jesus is rightfully livid. And he goes and he drives out the, what he calls, thieves, people who are taking advantage of these people. And more than likely, those people who were the thieves were paying off some of the religious leaders who, would given, who had given them the opportunity to sell in the temple. And so he had just done all of this, and after that dramatic event is the story that we're going to look at, where those religious leaders, fuming probably at what just took place, engaged with Jesus in a verbal conflict. And the emphasis that Luke highlights in this story uh, to his readers is on the topic of authority, primarily the authority of Jesus over and against their authority, the authority of the religious establishment in Jerusalem. We're going to see that word authority pop up over and over and over again in the text that we're going to read. And then there's a parable that basically highlights this idea of authority. And as Luke is telling this story, you ask, well, Luke, what are you intending? Why are you telling the story? What's your point? His aim to his audience is to show the utter foolishness of rejecting Jesus' obvious authority and by showing the tragic future of those who do reject that authority, even those who should have known better. This is what Luke is highlighting. And so our point this morning to us from this text is simple, Christ's authority is superior to all his challengers, and his use of authority is an example to all his 
followers. I'll say that again. Christ's authority is superior to all his challengers, and his use of authority is an example to all his followers. That's kind of the point we're going to tease out this morning. We're going to look at the text in three parts, and we're going to look at them individually. So we're going to start with the first one. This is Luke 20, 1 through 8. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. And he answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. We'll pause there. I said a moment ago, this scene occurs shortly after the arrival of Jesus into Jerusalem. The people were just giving admirations galore and on the heels of Jesus cleansing the temple and accusing those inside of being thieves. But it also comes after years of tension between Jesus and the religious authority the religious establishment of the day in Jerusalem. And at the height of this conflict is this question of authority, of power. The Greek word used for authority there is this fancy word exousia, which may sound familiar to you because it's where we get our word exorcism. It's this idea of power. And in this story, there is a battle over power. And after those recent events, those who occupied the positions of power in Jerusalem, they come to Jesus and ask him, by what authority, by what power does he base his words and his actions on? In other words, what gives you the right to do the kinds of things that you are doing and say the kinds of things that you are saying? Who do you think you are? This is their question. Unlike the scribes and the Pharisees, though, and the teachers of the day, Jesus, he taught, he acted with an authority all his own. When he taught, he did not repeat the sage wisdom of all of the other rabbis. He wasn't saying, oh, well, so-and-so said this and appealed to someone else's authority. He did not appeal to his own pedigree, well, I come from this family. He did not appeal to the school that he went to or the education that he had. He did not quote from the prior teachers of the law. Instead, he simply spoke from his own authority and he interpreted the scriptures and applied them to the people based solely upon his own understanding of the scriptures. We see this early on in Luke's gospel. In chapter four, Jesus, he's teaching the people and this is what Luke says about it. He says, and the people, they were astonished at his teaching. Why? For his word possessed authority. It was different than what they were hearing from the teachers of the law in their day. And it was that authority 
that was under constant scrutiny by the religious establishment. Prior to Jesus, these guys had a monopoly on that authority. Therefore, because Jesus wasn't submitting to their established power or fall in line with their standards, he was now a threat to their power and authority. Now think about that for a moment. Here is a guy teaching God's Word, someone who was gaining an audience and influence among the people, who was doing mighty things, performing mighty acts and healing and casting out demons, wonderful things in the name of God. And yet, you would think these guys, the religious elite, that they would be celebrating all of this that was going on. But instead, with every single action, with every single word, they grew harder and harder and more hateful toward Jesus. All they saw was a threat to that power. Now, he cleanses the temple. And now, not only was Jesus impacting their authority, religiously, spiritually, among the people, but now he's affecting their pocketbooks. Now he's affecting their wallets. Now it's getting a little bit too close and too personal. And so they're like, we can't do this. So they come and they ask him a question. One that was certainly meant to trap him with his answer. By what authority are you doing these things? And again, just so we're clear, this story is all about the superior authority of Jesus over all of his challengers, even the assumed religious establishment of the day. However, what we also see in the story is an example from Jesus for how to respond to people who engage in conflict with you over your Christian beliefs and by what basis or authority you stand on to say and do the things that you do and say. And we'll see some of that in this text. In response to this question, Jesus does two things. First, notice he diagnoses the sincerity of the questioner with a question himself. It's not a bad question in and of itself, but he knows, I want to make sure that this question is coming from the right place. So he asks them a question of his own. Something that we should all know by now is that not everyone who asks you a question, specifically one about your faith, is genuinely wanting to learn something. Oftentimes, they just want to set you up so that they can tear you down. They want to hear you say something, and then they're only going to hear what they want to hear. They're going to twist your words. They're going to take it out of context, and then they're going to mock you for it. This is what people do. And knowing this, Jesus follows up with a question. It's an easy question. He wants to see if their intentions were good. And he says, I've got a question for you. Was John from heaven, John the Baptist, was he from heaven? Was he sent from God or not? Now, here's the great thing about Jesus' position with this question and is he knows that the crowds that he was just talking to, he knows they like him. And he also knows that those people liked John the Baptist. And so with that knowledge, he doesn't feel the need to validate himself before these religious leaders. Instead, what he does is he gives them an opportunity to do the right thing by sincerely answering the question. But as you can see in the dialogue between them afterward, this isn't about them being sincere or them being genuine. It's about power. 
And it's about establishing power. It's about winning over Jesus in the debate, even if they have to lie in order to get there. They are willing to do anything to get their power back. And Jesus asks this question because he knows the issue, the problem, the predicament they're in. If they say yes, well, then he's going to say, well, then why didn't you believe John? Because John said, this is the Son of God. This is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Why didn't you believe him? Because what he said about me is true. Well, they can't say that. Um, but he also knows that if they say no, that those people are going to reject their authority because they were all convinced that John was a legit prophet sent from God. And it says that they feared if they say, no, these people are going to stone us to death. Now, why would they respond so aggressively? The reason is because it would prove these guys are false prophets. And according to their law, false prophets were to be stoned to death. And so they're caught between a rock and a hard place. And as they're stuck in this spot, they find a third option. I got an idea. We'll just not answer at all. <laughs> we'll just plead the fifth, I guess, and say, you know what? We thought about it. We don't really know. It was an answer of silence, a weak attempt to preserve their authority. But even though they didn't answer, this actually proves their weak spiritual leadership because they failed to discern whether or not someone is sent from God? How can a godly person not discern that very clear fact? And again, Jesus does all this for a purpose. He gives, his question gives him two simultaneous wins. The first win was that he showed how ignorant and selfish and weak these religious leaders were. And secondly, he gives himself an out from answering their question and giving them the fuel they were looking for to twist his words and call him a heretic. Because in the end, what does he do? He also gives them nothing. He responds with silence. All of this is a point to talk about defense. Jesus is on the defense, and he's defending his position and his authority. He feels no need to respond to them or to defend himself because he knows the authority he has and he doesn't need their validation to do or say the things that he is doing. And in this moment, Jesus shows two ways to respond to a critic. First, ask them a question. Give them an opportunity to reveal whether or not they're coming from a legitimate place. Discern their motives. And two, if you sense that they are not genuine, then say nothing. You don't need to respond. You know, it seems at times, and you've probably noticed this, maybe you've even fallen victim to it yourself. It seems that Christians don't understand that you don't always have to defend yourself, and Jesus doesn't need you to defend him either. Sometimes silence is the best response. In fact, we're going to see Jesus respond in silence just a few days from now when he is brought before Pontius Pilate. And Pilate is asking him all these questions. He's essentially saying, tell me something so that I can let you off the hook. And Jesus just stands there in silence and says absolutely nothing. How is he able to do that? I'm sure Pilate encountered thousands of criminals who were saying, it wasn't me, it wasn't me, it was this, it was that. All these excuses. And maybe they were right. 
He heard all of these reasons for people trying to get themselves on the, off the hook, and he expected Jesus to do the same because Jesus was actually innocent, and yet he just stood there and rested in his own innocence, and he rested in the providence of God and in the fact that even Pilate knew he was innocent, but knowing Pilate was a coward and was going to send him to be crucified anyway. So he didn't even feel the need to appease this man's conscience at all. But the point I want to make to you from this first section is this. Jesus, because of the authority that he had, felt no pressure to defend himself to these disingenuous people. Instead, he proved his authority by simply maintaining his silence. And we can do the same when people question our beliefs, when people question your beliefs and your behavior. You don't always need to defend yourself. First, discern their intentions. See if they're genuine. And if they aren't, you have the right to refrain, to say nothing. And in doing so, you send the message, I'm not interested in going down the rabbit hole or jumping on crazy train with you and getting into a long debate about all of these things when you're never, ever going to believe what I have to say anyway, because that's not your goal. You're just trying to trap me and twist my words and then mock me in the end. That is always a losing battle. There is an occasion, though, for silence to critics. At times, again, the best defense is just saying nothing. But there's another option because the story continues. Because at this moment, Jesus had these guys and the crowd right where he wants them. And he moves from that defensive position, from saying nothing, to now an offensive position. And his weapon of choice is a parable that he tells. And this parable is dripping with Scripture. So let's read the parable, verses 9 to 18. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they, that is the people, heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. We'll stop right there. During his ministry, Jesus told a lot of parables, 
these simple stories that are containing deep truths about the kingdom of God. Jesus told parables to inspire the curiosity of the humble seeker, but he also told parables to conceal the truth from those who wanted to accuse him of false teaching. He told a lot of parables, but what's unique about this parable from all of the others is that a preschooler could understand Jesus' point in this parable and what he was talking about. This was not a difficult story. The point is simple. Everyone understood it. The religious leaders and the crowds knew very well what Jesus was talking about. For starters, the reason why is because of the primary metaphor that he's using here, this metaphor of a vineyard. It was a well-known symbol for the people of Israel coming out of Isaiah 5. It's so significant. I want to read that portion of Isaiah to you. Just listen to what the prophet writes. He says, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Oh, now, O oh, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and I, it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or, or hoed and briars and th thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Verse 7, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. In Jesus' day, as he was speaking this parable of a vineyard, this would have been a well-known text from a well-respected prophet who was indicting God's people in his day on their unfaithfulness, their lack of fruitfulness, and their constant injustice and unrighteousness to one another and to the world. And Jesus takes that well-known text and he applies the image of the vineyard not simply to Israel as a whole, but to this group of guys these religious leaders and their lack of justice and righteousness. And what he says about them is the same thing that Isaiah is saying in his day, that God, who is the owner of the vineyard, will destroy the vineyard, which is the leaders of Israel. And what are his reasons? Because they lack the desired fruit and because they polluted the ground with bloodshed and injustice. These are harsh words. This is Jesus on the offense. But notice that they're not coming from just some random guy. They're coming from the pages of Scripture. He is holding them accountable to the words that they know. And it gets worse in this parable because the parable takes this text in Isaiah, presses the point even further because not only does the owner have every right to destroy the tenants of his vineyard for their wicked actions, but notice that the owner is 
gracious and merciful and kind and patient. He sends one servant and they treat him poorly. Then another and then another. Three witnesses against them for their wrongdoing. He was constantly sending them opportunities to get off the road of destruction, and they continued going down it. In fact, they got even worse, and he thought, I've got an idea. They'll listen to my beloved son, certainly, and instead what they do is they kill him. And who were the servants in the parable? They were the prophets, whom God had sent to His people for generations and who they had rejected repeatedly throughout their history, ending in John the Baptist. They did not listen to Him either. Again, Jesus uses all this evidence against these men who sought to challenge His authority and by so doing exposes their wickedness and their intentions. They parade themselves around as having these intimate relationships with God, but in reality, going back to the parable, all they want is the crop. They don't want the king. They want the goods, but they don't want God. In the words of the Apostle Paul, they loved the creation, but they did not love the creator. They were idolaters, is what he's calling them, at the very heart of it. And Jesus speaks of the justice of God in bringing even these men, those who were supposed to be the religious elite in Israel, to destruction for their injustice. Again, the parable is clear. And notice the response even of the people. They say, surely not. No way, Jesus. Are you seriously saying that God is going to take away the blessing from Israel? Give it to somebody else and judge these people. There's no way that's what you're saying. And where does Jesus take them? He takes them right back to Scripture again. And he says, well, you tell me what this text says. Psalm 118 is where he quotes from. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You tell me what that text is all about. And and they can't come up with another option. How else can you understand that? Again, Luke's purpose in retelling the story is to show that Jesus has authority and that God will one day bring justice for evil and rebellion. Even that justice will come down on the house of Israel and the vineyard for their wickedness. But at the same time, in this moment, Luke is giving us an example from Jesus regarding authority and how to use it. The truth is, the only means of authority that we have as Christians that we can use on the offense to anybody who comes against us is just the Scripture, not our opinions, not our personal experiences, not what mommy and daddy taught us, but what the Scriptures teach, unless mom and dad taught us the Scriptures, of course. Keep in mind, Jesus was the living Word of God. He possessed this intrinsic authority, but He appealed to Scripture in his offense. He wasn't appealing to the psychologists of the day, the philosophers of the day. He was just appealing to Scripture for his authority. Again, not what's popular, not what is personal opinion. And there will be times when people will ask you why you do the things that you do and believe the things that you believe in. And though you can appeal to personal experience, and sociological evidence and all of these things, none of that has power to persuade anyone. And then you make it personal. 
between them and you. But the fact of the matter is, the only authority that we have is the authority of Scripture. And that is what we are to bind the conscience to, our conscience and theirs. And keep in mind, there are people who, well, I don't believe the Bible. And you can quote the Bible all, the one at, all you want at me, but I don't believe any of that. It doesn't matter. The Bible still has authority because the Bible is still that living book that is alive and it's like a sword and it pierces all the way down into someone's soul. And what's great about the scriptures is that you can appeal to them and then remove yourself from the situation. This, this isn't a conversation between you and me. This is a conversation between you and him. I'm, ju I'm just in the middle of it. But if you've got an issue with what I'm saying or what I believe, as long as it's in the Bible, then your issue is with God and, and you can take it up with Him. In theological debates, it is not a matter of differing opinions. When it comes to the Bible, we don't have the luxury of agreeing to disagree. This is truth, and you either submit to it or you don't, but it's not my opinion. Now, just as an example, Christians argue about all kinds of things that aren't in the Bible, like should you homeschool your kids or public school your kids? Should you vote for this person or vote for that person? You can have all the opinions you want. We don't want to be known for those things per se. We want to be known for Scripture and what we're appealing to there. What we do is we preach and we teach the truth of God's Word and apply it appropriately, and we apply it compassionately. Jesus may appear to lack compassion in this story, but that's not true. If He lacked compassion, He wouldn't say anything to these guys. Instead, He tells them a hard truth in order to win them back. But we apply God's Word to people compassionately, and then we leave the results to God. One of the craziest experiences I've had as a Christian, even over the last few years as a pastor, is seeing the response of people to the teachings of the Bible. A lot of pastors, a lot of Christians in general, I think they have this naive, naive idea of thinking, I got an idea, I'll share the good news of the gospel with someone, and they'll love me for it. They will accept it readily. I mean, who wouldn't want to believe the good news of Jesus? And in some cases, that does happen, but then they're surprised when at times, when you're sharing the truth and you're doing it lovingly, all they hear and see is someone threatening their power their authority, their way of life, their status in the community, their opinion, and their only reaction, because they can't defeat the logic of Scripture, is to just get you out of there. It's their only option. And that will happen at times, even to godly people. And that's the reaction of these people in the story. Let's see how it ends in verses 19 to 20. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. <coughs> in these, I guess, closing words to the story, we see that these leaders, they haven't given up. They weren't persuaded. They just changed their tactic. You would think that they would be scared to the point of repentance. Oh man, that is what God's Word says. We need to 
change our opinion and view, but that's not their tactic. Instead of asking Jesus questions now, they scheme in a sinister way. And they're going to try and find something in Jesus, in his words, in order to find him guilty. In their minds, he was guilty already. They just had to prove it to everyone else so that they might destroy him, which we know they did just a few days later. And we'll get to that on Good Friday. But here's the point. Jesus had, and he still has, all authority in heaven and on earth, even when he was dying on the cross, he was demonstrating his authority over all challengers. But in this story, he proved his authority, not by arguing or vindicating himself, but by silencing his critics and exposing their wickedness and the future destruction that they are going to experience from the Scriptures. There is coming a day when the justice of God will come. And the good news is those in Christ, those who have repented of sin, put their faith and trust in Him, the hope that we have is that we will be ushered into His kingdom while those who rejected the authority of Christ will suffer eternal destruction. He uses that little quote at the end of the parable, if you fall on this stone, you will be broken. But if that stone falls on you, you will be crushed. And, and no matter what, we're all going to be impacted by the effect of Jesus. Every Christian is broken when we fall on Jesus by faith. But that's a lot better than being crushed by the weight of his glory and his judgment. And that's what he is saying. Remember this, if you're a Christian, the world will never accept you like they did to Jesus and like they did to the disciples in the book of Acts, when they can't argue with you or with the scriptures that you teach, they'll just try and get rid of you. They did it to Jesus, they'll do it to you. But here's the hope we have. Jesus is right there with you the entire way. And there is a reward in heaven for those who persevere and endure to the end. Why don't we pray and we'll have a time of communion together. God, we come before you, and, and in many ways, this story is, is a sobering reality. It points us to the authority of Jesus, and yet the opposition that he experienced in the world by those who should have known better, by those who should have seen, by those who were the teachers of Israel, and yet they taught the opposite. They were leading people away from Jesus. God, I pray that in our congregation, in, in our church here, that we would be, that we would have the self-control, the self, the security that we have in Christ to, in certain moments, not feel the need to defend ourselves or to defend you, but to have good discernment and to even act in silence at times. God, I pray that you would also give us the boldness and the clarity of mind that in moments we would be able to go on the offense and share the truths of Scripture with people. Not to tear them down, but so that they would believe and be transformed and put their faith and trust in you as Jesus himself would have wanted for these leaders. God, I pray that that would be the 
evangelistic and the discipleship strategy of our church, that we would have that level of focus as we follow the example of Christ, who has all authority and who has given that authority to us to go and make disciples and do it in the example that he set before us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.